Remember what happened in chapter 13, because this is a key for what we're going to look at. Um, Abraham, Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen were having a quarrel over what? Pasture. Pasture. They wasn't enough for the two of them. So what proposal did Abram make to Lot? <coughs> Pick which way you want to go, and I'll go the other. Exactly. He gave Lot, his nephew, the choice. You look every direction. You go the direction you want. I'll go the opposite direction. We won't have any more quarreling between our herdsmen. Well, what did Lot see that attracted him? The good land. Yeah, that's not good. You can probably close that better. Yeah, the good land, the well-watered pasture ground. And uh, the, he, he wanted that for himself. He, he only thought about, you know, his own flocks and herds. He wasn't too concerned about Abram's. And um, he wasn't thinking about one other detail when he moved down that direction either. And what was that? Sodom. Yeah, what about Sodom? Yeah, so he's going to be right there around very wicked people in very wicked cities. But he wasn't thinking about that. It's got good pasture ground. You know, it'll grow some pretty fat sheep and goats and whatever, you know, and so that's what he was thinking about. And uh, when, when Lot does that, God tells Abram that one day his descendants will inherit all the land around him. And that's where we ended up in chapter 13. Any questions or comments before we go into 14? All right, chapter 14, 1 to 12. If, uh, read this if you like reading this. <laughs> And it came about in the days of uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, uh, Chedor Lamor, king of Elim, Tidal, king of Goyim, and that they made war with uh, Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shimabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. <clears throat> Twelve years uh, they had served uh, Chador Laamor, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year of Ched and the kings that were with him, they came and defeated the Rephium and Ashtoreth Karnaim, and the Zuzum in Ham, and the Emim in Shumplace. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Uh, then they turned back and came to another place, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who lived in Haz Hazazon, Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sedem against Ched, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, and all these other guys that we mentioned before, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. Uh, and they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Okay. So, we have a crisis. What's the crisis? 
trying to pronounce these names. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were very creative with that. Right? What, what, what happened? War. War! You've got a four-nation coalition out of the East. And you particularly might recognize in verse 1, one particular place from earlier in the book of Genesis. Shinar. Shinar, which was associated with the Tower of Babel. So we're dealing with these, this four-nation coalition from the East. And they make war with a five-nation coalition, including the king of Sodom. And all of this is near the Salt Sea. What's the Salt Sea? The Dead Sea. Why do we call it the Salt Sea, Logan? Because it has a lot of salt. Yeah. Do you know how much? About ten times more than oceans. Because it has no, no outlet. So the water evaporates and just leaves the salt mineral content. Yeah, so it's getting uh, saltier. What? So it continues to get saltier. I assume so. I'm not an expert on that subject, but I assume so. So, for 12 years, the four <laughs> nations, including Sodom, five nations, including Sodom, serve the four nations with Cater Leomer. But in the 13th year, verse 4, they rebelled. Wonder what that means, they rebelled. Quit paying the taxes. That's it. Quit paying tribute. That's rebellion. And that's usually what they did. You know, because it wasn't like these five, these four nations are governing the area. They're just demanding the tribute payment every year. You don't send the tribute payment, you're rebelling. And so, the four-nation coalition with, I like Ched, uh, <laughs> with Ched, um, came and wiped out that whole area, including reconquering the five nations. And, uh, be, looks like the car that you were driving. It's Jim. Okay. Looks like the same thing coming right past. <laughs> Is it the same car? No. I have no idea. I didn't see it. Look like uh, so anyhow, um, they reconquer the five nations and conquer a lot of uh, area around that nearby uh, territories. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah flee. And the stuff of Sodom and Gomorrah is taken by the four-nation coalition. And not only the stuff, but some of the people in those cities were taken as hostage. And who did that include? Lot. Now notice verse 12. Do you see a change in Lot's place of residence? He's in Sodom instead of outside of it. Yes. He had gone as far as Sodom. That's 1312. Now in 1412, he was living in Sodom. So it sounds to me like he's increasingly closely connected with Sodom. And not only is he ever closer to Sodom, it's also costing him more. You know, he thought, man, this is going to be great. You know, living here in this city with all the nice watered plains and the pasture ground and all that. But when you live in a city full of wickedness, it has its consequences. And one of them is 
Lot's taken away as a prisoner of war. Maybe it wasn't such a good idea for him to have chosen to move down that way. All right, comments and questions through verse 12. Kevin. Would, um, uh, the dude, Jed, Lot, sorry, would Lot have been in the war? Would he have, like, been helping fight it and then be taken captive? Or would he have just been in the city and taken captive? Either is probably possible. I assumed he was just in the city and taken captive, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Other questions or comments? There's a lot of other names in that section. There are. Other than just the five. <laughs> yes. The five and the four. <coughs> a lot of other names. Territories and... Yes, you're right. It's rights a and Amicites and Amorites and... It requires uh, very rapid flexing of the tongue. Yeah. So did they just, they didn't just come in and... No, they took the surrounding territory as well. Yes. Obviously, this four-king coalition is tough. You know, they've obviously got some, some wallow. Uh, can you sort of explain further verse 10? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it looks to me like the area where they're fighting, which is near the Salt Sea was an area where there was a lot of tar pits and uh, the, a lot of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and uh, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and they actually fell into the tar pits but some were able to flee to the hill country. I don't really know exactly what a tar pit would be but it doesn't sound like a place you'd want to fall into. <laughs> you almost sound like the kings fell in there. So yeah, exactly. I think so. But then we see the king again shortly. Yeah, well, maybe he was rescued. Oh. Or maybe he was succeeded. <laughs> and it, said, it says in the end of the verse that, but those who survived fled. The, so that makes me think that the ones that fell in and survived and actually got out fled. I don't think he can get out of the tar pit. How you can? can die. <laughs> what do you really think, Luke? <laughs> Very good. So it may be that they've got a new king of Sodom by the end of the, uh, you know, chapter. I mean, after all, what would we do if the president died? Go without a president? No, we'd appoint a new one. No, we got another one on, in the way. Too bad. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Other questions or comments? All right. Well, as often happens, Abram steps in to resolve crises with Lot. So, 13 to 16. And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were the confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, I guess his nephew, better translation, he armed his trained servants, uh, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote him, smote them, and pursued them to Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back again his brother Lot, and his, his goods, and, and the women also, and the people. Okay. So, somebody came and told Abram. What did Abram do? He went and saved him. Yes. Uh, how did he do it? With 318 men. 
Okay, he had allies, he took them. Does it surprise you that Abram intervened like this? Maybe for more than one reason. He's not young anymore. He isn't. So that I wasn't the reason I was thinking <laughs> of. <laughs> I have a envisioning him going out and fighting and all this stuff. Well, look at me. That's <laughs> why. <laughs> Man, it's crazy. I'm the oldest person in this room right now. It's really depressing. All right. We're used to that. Yeah, it's getting to be more common. Well, I was thinking that maybe he would think that, well, Lot made his own bed by going there in the first place. After the way Lot had treated Abram, selfishly choosing the best pasture land for himself, not seeming to care or respect Abram, I think it would have stood to reason to leave him to his own fate. You know, it kind of served him right, don't you think? So that tells you something about Abram. He's not a guy to hold a grudge, Cass. Well, in chapter 12, he was very cowardly with uh, making his wife his sister. Yes, exactly. This seems out of character for what we've seen already about Abram because he didn't have a whole lot of guts back in chapter 12. So he seems to have gained some courage for this encounter. Uh, that's, that's exactly right. I mean... You know, he does have a small army with him, but he's going up against the armies from four nations that have been extremely successful throughout that whole region. Uh, wow. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, what happens in the fight? Well, he whipped him and chased him down. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he whipped him. And, and what did he do as a result of uh, defeating them? Brought back the goods. Brought back the goods and? Lot. Lot and the people that had been taken captive. Now, what does this show you? The fact that Abram won the battle. He had God with him. That's exactly right. You know, whenever you see one of these deals where the odds seem way stacked against uh you know, the people of God, and you see them winning a smashing victory, you know the Lord was behind this one. Um, there's one other detail I need to tell you, just as soon not, but I think you need to know this. Um, you know, we're getting more and more attacks on the Bible from skeptics and so forth, and there are a few details that we need to reckon with and realize are in the Bible. Do you notice a problem in verse 14? His brother... No. Well, that's, that is a problem, perhaps, but brother is used loosely a lot of times in the Bible. Oh. And when it says he went as far as Dan. As Dan. What's the problem with that? Dan was one of the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes wouldn't have been around. Yes. Wouldn't have been around when Abram went that far, and also wouldn't have been around there when Moses wrote the book. This is after they conquered the land and Dan didn't conquer its territory and moved north and conquered Laish. Do you see the problem? Do you have a solution? It's God's inspired word. He knows all. Prophecy. Well, God certainly knows all, but it doesn't read like a prophecy. I mean, God's certainly able to tell what's going to happen. But, you know, it, 
doesn't say he pursued as far as what would become Dan or something like that. I mean, it's like he, they expect the reader to know what that means. I want to give you a different solution. Now, you don't have to accept this one. So it may bother some of you. Uh, so that's fine. You can, you can think about other options. But I suspect, and this happens just occasionally throughout the narrative of, of, of the books of Moses, I suspect this is a reflection of an updating by a later scribe. There were times when the, scribe, the scribes would add a chronological or geographical note just to kind of bring it up to date. And I suspect that's what we've got here. That's, that would be, I think, the majority view of that. And uh, don't ask me where, but we'll run across occasionally something like that. Not often. Uh, but that's, that's my preference because it doesn't read like it was a prophecy. Um, there are difficulties every once in a while as we're studying the Bible. You know, I mean, there's going to be some things you can't explain. Or you're not sure what the explanation is. I mean, I, I will go back to this. I want to, because I, I need to make these points, I think. You know, remember that in Daniel, for a long time, nobody had a clue who Belshazzar was. And they thought that Daniel just made it up and didn't have any basis in History, we knew that the last king of Babylon was not Belshazzar. We knew that that wasn't the case until now we found, I think, 37 texts that tell us that the, I believe it was, uh, I've always gotten confused, Nabopolassar, I think, uh, that was the last king. I may have that wrong. Uh, and, uh, or Nabonidus. Was it Nabonidus? Maybe it's Nabonidus. Whichever. Um, that he was away for whatever reason and that Belshazzar was acting king and had been for several years. And, but what if 200 years ago you'd gotten this challenge, well, where's Belshazzar fit You wouldn't have the answer. You wouldn't have known. Did it mean the Bible was invalid? Well, was the Bible invalid when we didn't have enough data and now it's valid because we do? Well, the Bible's valid either way. We just didn't have the data to help us solve the problem. God didn't make the Bible to where it was impossible to challenge. You know, I mean, he could have made it to where it just hit us over the head and there was no way we could disbelieve. God didn't make it that way. God made it to where we believe it on faith. Faith that's based on evidence, but not faith that's based on there not being any questions we don't know the answer to. If that's what it takes for you to believe in the Lord, you won't ever believe in him. Because there are always going to be questions you don't have the answer to. And, uh, I think we need to reckon with that. I think we need to examine the basis for our faith. I think we need to be honest with the evidence. But I don't think we hold God's word hostage to our being able to answer every last question that a skeptic raises against the text of the Bible. We have plenty of evidence. We have strong evidence. Every once in a while, there's something that comes along that we'll scratch our head over, and you may think one solution's better, and I'll think a different one. But the truth of the matter is, we're not sure. And it's a difficulty. And uh, it's okay that there's difficulties. God, God allowed there to be that. It's a test of our faith. And uh, we surely have way better evidence to believe than not to believe. Do you have a thought or comment about that? Remember that when somebody starts challenging you. Okay. Um, well, how about 17 to 24 kind of the aftermath who uh, Abram meets on his way back. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, 
that is the King's Valley. After his return from the defeat of Ched and the kings who were with him, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, <coughs> except only what the young men have eaten, and a portion of the men who went with me. Ener, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So, he meets two kings on his return. The king of Sodom is mentioned and and then we follow up on that in 21 to 24. Uh, but we first really read about the encounter with Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, um, this is a, an important uh, little encounter, uh, really because of some other things that are going to be done with this later on in the Bible. So we do need to look at this carefully. Uh, the name Melchizedek, do you know what that means? King of Salem? No. King of peace? No. Melk means king or king of. And Zedek means righteousness. So his <coughs> name meant king of righteousness. Now he was actually the king of Salem, which most people think was probably short for Jerusalem. Either way, do you know what Salem means? Now some of you are right. Peace. Do you know the uh, current Hebrew word that means peace? Shalom, Salem. You know, basically the same word. Um, so, he was actually the king of a place named Peace. And um, he was not just a king, though. What other function did he have? He was a priest. Now, was it common for kings and priests to be the same people in the Old Testament? Not one we have recorded. <laughs> no. Why was that not common? They're from different tribes. Yes. After the law of Moses came into effect, they were from different tribes. The priests were from which tribe? Levi. Levi. And the kings, which didn't start until well on down, uh, the, the, the authorized kingly lineage came from what tribe? Judah. Judah. Therefore, you never had a king that was a priest or a priest that was a king. Melchizedek, of course, was an exception because he was prior to the law. There was actually no tribe of Levi yet or tribe of Judah yet or anything like that. So when Abram meets Melchizedek, who does what to whom? Melchizedek blesses him. Melchizedek <clears throat> blesses Abram. And what does Abram do for Melchizedek? Gives him a tithe. Yes. Would you have expected this to happen? Here you have this king priest that Abram encounters on his way back from defeating that four-nation coalition, 
And Melchizedek blesses Abram. Abram gives 10%, maybe 10% of the spoil, I don't know, to Melchizedek. What does that tell you that about the relative uh, position of Abram and Melchizedek? Who is presented as sort of superior to the other? Melchizedek. Why? Because he blessed... Abram and Abram paid him. Yes, exactly. And uh, so that whole story is used later in the Bible. In Psalm 110, a passage that talks about Jesus becoming king, it says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I've sworn that, in fact, God said, to the Messiah. So Psalm 110 says that the Messiah would not only be king, but he'd be a priest like Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7 has an extended discussion about that. It says, look, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. Jesus was a priest? Yes? Yes. A Levitical priest from the tribe of Levi? Why not? He was from the tribe of Judah. That's the most important consideration there. Uh, yeah, he couldn't have been a priest from the tribe of Levi since he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the kingly tribe. So he was from the David family. Um, so if Jesus was a priest, it wasn't after the Levi type of priesthood. It was actually a priesthood after the Melchizedek type of priesthood. Okay? Now, can I say that again so that I can make a point? I want to just, out of this text, make for a second the point Hebrews makes. We know that Melchizedek was a king-priest and that there really weren't others like that throughout the Old Testament. We know that Jesus was a king-priest and he's considered to be kind of a priest on the Melchizedek type. We know that Melchizedek was greater than Abram. Because Abram paid a tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed Abram. So Jesus being a Melchizedek type priest is better than Abram and better than the Levi priests. Where was Levi when Abram paid the tithe to Melchizedek? In his loins. Yeah, in his loins. What does that mean? He hadn't been born yet. He hadn't been born yet. He was Abram's great grandson. And therefore, we'd say he was in Abram's genes. You know, that's really what we're saying. And so if Melchizedek's greater than Abram, surely he's greater than Levi, the descendant of Abram. And therefore, Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Levi priesthood. And isn't it interesting that Abram, think about this one. You can do what you want to with this. But isn't it interesting that Abram gave more to a symbol and type of Christ than many people give to Christ himself. It, I, I don't know that we've done this, but I'll tell you what's happened in Brazil, and keep pushing me to write articles down there on the website. I really need to do those. It's been years. And one of the things that I want to write about, one of the things that has really happened in Brazilian denominations is they are money hungry. They push money every other breath. 
worse than TV preachers here. Well, one of the things that people have been interested in learning when they come to find out how to properly understand the Bible is that we're no longer under the Old Testament law. We're no longer under the law of tithing, which is true. We're not under the law of tithing. But I see a lot of Brazilian, even brethren, like, oh, it's so cool we're not commanded to tithe anymore. As if, what a relief. Now I don't have to give or give very much. Well, we don't have a specific figure. I can't give you one. But I don't think it's a good idea for us to look at this and think, oh, that's wonderful. Didn't want to give much to God anyway. That doesn't strike me as the right attitude for us to have. Uh, so you can think about that. Comments or questions on Melchizedek through verse 20. In fact, if you take that further, then you could argue that since we're not given an amount, but that Jesus' priesthood was is better than that of Levi's uh, and Aaron's, and since our promises are better, wouldn't our offering be better? You would certainly see that in other things where whatever you had in the Old Testament seems to be intensified, amplified. You know, you think about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus sort of amplifying some of the commands. You think about, you know, our incense is greater, prayers, our temple is greater, our body, you know, and, and things like that. So, I mean, it would certainly fit that pattern. You know, I suspect the Lord has put us more on our own which is cool if we handle that responsibly, we're free to give all we want to now. We're not limited to just 10%. I think that would be a great way for us to look at that as opposed to thinking, oh, that's great, no more 10%. You know, just worries me whenever we think like that uh, because that strikes you as maybe like, well, I really wasn't wanting to do any more than I had to anyway. And that, does, that means we're not really in tune with the, you know, goals of God. Other thoughts? Well, look at the king of Sodom. This encounter is a bit interesting also. I, uh, although we may have proven from Cameron's statement that uh, we have a new king of Sodom. My, my notes, I just with a question mark wrote, did he get out of his tar pit? <laughs> uh, but maybe, maybe this is... Uh, king of Sodom, you know, the second or something. Uh, and he says to Abram, give the people to me, verse 21, and take the goods for yourself. You know, uh, this is a great favor Abram's done. He's rescued the people and possessions of Sodom and, and the other cities. And, and basically, you know, the king of Sodom is saying, look, you can have the stuff. That's kind of your payment, your reward for rescuing them. Just give me the people. And what's Abram's response? anything. Why not? Because he didn't want him to be able to brag that he had made Abram rich. <clears throat> yes. Do you see wisdom in that? Well, if Abram knows that God is going to bless him, then when other people see him blessed, they'll think, you know, the king of Sodom might try to claim that. Yes. Yeah, good point. He doesn't want people to think 
that the king of Sodom gets the credit for his well-being. You know, what happens if we accept the world's favors? What would usually happen as a result of that? That's exactly right. You know, you we surrender our position of independence. I don't think Abram wanted to be beholden to a person like the king of Sodom. You know, you don't want to owe him anything. That's just a matter of wisdom, really, uh, in that. And, you know, Abram is clearly not a selfish grasping person trying to get anything he can. Look at his situation with Lot. Look at now his opportunity with the, the king of Sodom. He, he doesn't want people to think about him that way. He's a, he's, a, he's a pilgrim. He's a stranger. He is not out for worldly stuff. Sometimes you accept something and you sort of compromise your position as not being a greedy, materialistic, worldly person. That's what I see in all that. What uh, he does say, you know, you can let the men who went with me. I mean, they deserve their cut. So he said, you can share that with them. Comments or questions on chapter fourteen? Well, but he also doesn't embrace poverty as as something that's you know noble in and of itself either, because he's a very wealthy man himself. So you know, we we can't paint him in the other direction either. I agree. Yeah, it's true. And I'm not I'm not trying yeah. to make a big point out of that, but sometimes sometimes we view poverty as having some some you know inherent morality in and of itself, and and that's no more true than than the fact that riches have a a negative morality in and of themselves. Um, so yeah, there's a little balance there, but 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 I think your points are, are well made. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not that. Abram doesn't have possessions or that God is not blessing him in that way but he's letting God do the blessing instead of the king of Sodom do the blessing. We just studied in, in Proverbs uh, uh, 10 and I don't remember the verse so I want to find it and it, it made a point about um, blessing uh, coming from God Uh, 10.22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. I mean, you think about the sorrow that could come from him accepting the the, the gift from the king of Sodom. That You don't have that with the blessing of the Lord. Good point, yeah. And there's often strings attached, you know, and, and we have to be careful about that because we don't want to be in a position where we owe a favor to a worldly person who might try to you know, extracted from us in some wrong way. So, you know, we just have to be wise. I, I don't know that this is just a rule, you know, in every situation, uh, but I think you can certainly see some wisdom behind what Abraham did here with, with the king of Sodom. Remember how bad Sodom is, too. All right, other comments or questions? This might be the new king of Sodom, though. Yes, exactly. But Sodom's wicked. Right. Whatever, whoever's come out of Sodom, probably not likely to be very good. You know. Other thoughts. 
And who are these people that went with him? Uh, friends. And how come it says it were the ones born in his house back in 2015? Yeah. You, you've got some uh, who were like servants of his. <clears throat> but you also have, um, you know, um, this uh, guy, uh, uh, the brother of Eshkol and the, the brother of Anor who were allies. So you've got some friends and you've got some, some servants of Abram. So maybe the 318 were just his and then when the, he attacked the, um, those four king's armies, he had his allies with him too. Maybe so. Maybe so. Mm -hmm. Because he mentions these men again in verse 24 as meriting their share. Mm -hmm. you know. So they seem to have been not servants of Abraham. And is this the Mamre guy that on the ground that he bought. I don't know, maybe. Alright, other questions or comments? Did so Abram knew that God was going to bless him and make him prosperous. And God told him. Okay. Then how did he know that this wasn't the way that God was doing that? Like we talk sometimes about how like if God's going to help you, then you can't accept it from anybody else. But how you can go overboard with that? So I think because of who the king of Sodom was. Okay. You know, I mean, it's kind of like you know, uh, would you say if you knew somebody was passing you stolen property, would you think, well, God's blessing me? No. <laughs> no, because there's other things that show you that it can't be God. So I think that might be part of it. Other thoughts? All right, we'll look at chapter 15 then. Um, verses 1 to 6. 